Welcome to this month's special series, Exploring Heart Health, on ReachMD XM157. We know that the food we eat may impact our risk for cardiovascular disease, but what about the food that we don't eat? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a ReachMD special series, Exploring Heart Health. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. Joining me today is Dr. Brent Muhlstein and Dr. Benjamin Horn both from Intermountain Medical Center, and both have appointments at the University of Utah. Dr. Muhlstein is an interventional cardiologist and director of cardiology research at Intermountain Healthcare. Dr. Horn has his PhD in medical informatics and specializes in genetic epidemiology. We have both of them here today to discuss their recent research in the area of fasting and cardiovascular disease. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Horn, why don't you begin by telling us what is medical informatics and explain its relationship to genetic epidemiology. How did you get into such a specialized area? Well, medical informatics is simply the use of technology in medicine. And in most applications, that refers to computers, but there are other technologies that are used. The reason I did my PhD in medical informatics was because Back in the 1980s and 1970s, a large genetic database was put together at the University of Utah called the Utah Population Database. And from that large number of genetic studies, genealogical studies of cancer were performed. And because it was a medical database using technology, it was incorporated into the Department of Medical Informatics and to this day remains a part of the medical informatics department, although the researchers in the department have branched out into various other genetic fields of investigation. So all your genetic data had to be housed using probably state-of-the-art and technology anyhow, so that's why it fell into your domain. Correct. That's right. And I did a graduate work previously in public health and moved from that in towards epidemiology and then genetic epidemiology, and so that's how I ended up in medical informatics. And Dr. Muhlstein, you've practiced interventional cardiology for years. How did you come upon the effects of fasting and cardiovascular risk? Well, it's quite an interesting story. It starts with the fact that both Dr. Horn and I are natives of Utah, and the majority religion in Utah is the Mormon population. Also, having trained at Duke University in the past, I noted a very high incidence and prevalence of coronary heart disease. But when coming back to Utah, although there is coronary heart disease, it was it occurred at a later age of people, and the prevalence was not nearly as high as it was back in North Carolina. And you noticed this just going from North Carolina back to Utah. Yes. And then also, of course, North Carolina is called Tobacco Road, and so we knew that smoking was certainly much more prevalent in North Carolina as compared to Utah. But also a variety of studies, mostly that have come out of California, have in the past published data that showed that the incidence of heart disease amongst the Mormon population was significantly lower than the general population. And so we decided, well, we would try to look at that ourselves. And the presumption was that tobacco use, which is proscribed by the Mormon religion, was the major reason because the incidence of tobacco use was much lower. But there's a lot of people who are non-Mormons in Utah who don't smoke, but also get heart disease. So we decided we'd evaluate it carefully and see what we could find. So we first did a study, which we just compared the Mormon population to the non-Mormon population and their incidence of coronary artery disease and found indeed that coronary artery disease was lower in the patients who were Mormons as compared to not Mormons. But we had data which the 
California studies didn't have regarding smoking. And when we adjusted for smoking, for instance, we just took non-smoking Mormons and non-smoking people who are not members of the Mormon Church and looked at them, we found that even after eliminating smoking as a risk factor, the Mormon population had a lower prevalence of coronary heart disease than did the non-Mormon population. So then that brought up the question, why might that be the case? And to try to figure that out, we then proceeded with this study in which we started to look at other things that Mormons do in particular that other non-Mormon populations might not do, and which ones of those might be more associated with heart disease. Now, did you find a lot of enthusiasm for this in your hospital or in your university? Yeah, we did. They were quite excited about our findings. As we'll go on with further discussions, we aren't sure exactly what to do with it yet, but it's very interesting and something that we want to pursue further to come up with a way that we might more effectively recommend therapy and appropriate lifestyle for our patients. If you're just joining the discussion, you're listening to a special series, Exploring Heart Health on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and we're fortunate today to have with us Dr. Brent Muelstein and Dr. Benjamin Horn, talking on the effects of fasting on cardiovascular disease. So, Dr. Muelstein, when you looked at this population and you saw this trend, and sounds like a lot of it was your own observations, how did you begin to rule out the other effects for dietary habits, caffeine, red meat, or fat? Yes, what we did, and actually I'll let Dr. Horn talk more about this, is he designed a specific questionnaire that we then offered to patients. And Dr. Horn, why don't you take it from there? Thank you. We designed a questionnaire to investigate the prevalence of a variety of behaviors, lifestyles in the population that we serve. And we inquired about the for, for the patients who were coming into the hospital to the cardiac cath lab, we inquired about their use of alcohol, tea and coffee, the social support, and other types of religious observances, and, and also about fasting. And on top of that, we routinely collect information about patient risk factors such as their age and their sex, their history of hypertension and high cholesterol, diagnosis of diabetes, whether or not they smoke, if they have a family history of early coronary disease, what their body mass index is. And in large proportion of the patients, we also have information about physical activity in a format of caloric expenditure and also education and income. And so we used all these variables to adjust in statistical models to see if the effect of fasting remained after adjusting for all these other potential confounders. Did you find that BMI played a role in the response to fasting? We found that there was a weak trend that people who reported being fasters or fasting routinely, that they tended to have a lower BMI. It wasn't a very large difference, but there was a trend towards that. We also looked at individuals, if fasting affected their risk of coronary disease, if they had a high BMI and if they had a low BMI, and the effect of fasting on coronary disease was very similar in individuals regardless of what their BMI was. Now, for people that aren't, or listeners that aren't familiar with the Mormon lifestyle, explain about the fasting and how often the population you surveyed was fasting. Okay. The fasting typically in Mormon community is observed once a month for a 24-hour period, and it's usually on the first Sunday of the month. They can fast more than that, but the typical is, is just once a month. And there are individuals who fast more often, correct? There are some, yes. 
Because in, in the Jewish religion, too, the Orthodox Jews, um, people know they fast for Yom Kippur, but they actually have many other days during the month that they fast as well. Do you think, Dr. Horn, from your research, can fasting overcome genetics in this population, or does the gene pool have a dominant effect also? Fasting probably is. We did not investigate that, uh, the genetic effects of fasting at this point. That's one of the things we do want to follow up on in future studies. But there have been studies that have shown that individuals who have major genetic risk factors for coronary disease can, by changing their lifestyles, alleviate most of the genetic risk that they have from the genetic markers that they carry. Which is fascinating. Can you tell us, Dr. Horn, talk us through a little bit of just some of the physiology that occurs during fasting for 24 hours? What happens in the beginning or what have you studied? It's not completely clear at this point and we need to do further research to investigate this physiology. The data that we have other than our study comes from animal studies and There have been a few studies that have looked at fasting in mice and roundworms and slugs, but very little data in humans. What we do know from those animal studies is that there are some major changes in expression of a variety of different genes. Some of them are carrier transporters, some ABC or ATP binding cassette transporters, some are detoxification genes. The one that's that's most interesting at this point is called the, the FOXA family, F-O-X-A, and it's been shown in mice and in roundworms. The roundworms have an orthologous gene called PHA4, but it's been shown that in response to fasting that there are substantial changes in the expression of those genes, and those genes are related to glucose metabolism, glucose homeostasis, and expression of glucagon. So our hypothesis is that there's some level of resensitization of the body to glucose during the the fasting period, and that there may be some effect on reducing the risk of diabetes and, and glucose and insulin resistance. Dr. Muelstein, do you lose some of this benefit from fasting if you go back to eating foods that have concentrated glucose or starches or they're high in saturated fats? That's a very interesting question. In this study, we couldn't tell the answer for sure because we didn't know explicitly the diets that the people were eating on a daily basis when they weren't fasting. Our assumption is that they're eating a standard American diet for the most part and the finding was still there regardless of what sort of dietary description they gave. And so it appears that it probably wouldn't be lost. Now, whether or not it would be even more beneficial to stay on a very healthy diet all all the time, it's most likely definitely the case. But it appears that the fasting where you might trigger a variety of metabolic changes by doing it intermittently turns out to be probably independent of what other sort of diet that you're ingesting for the rest of the time. What type of percent reduction did you see in this population? As I recall, Ben, and you can correct me, it was about 25% reduction. Is that right? It actually was was more like 40%. There was about a 40% reduction in risk of coronary disease. And you already took out for the other factors, right? The smoking and... Right. That's the adjusted level of risk. What about for the practicing physician who's listening to the broadcast and says, God, this is a great thing, and I have patients who are already doing a lot to modify their lifestyle. Maybe they can do a little more. Is there a take-home message for physicians in you know, regular, everyday private practice? Yeah, I'd say the take-home message is certainly there's no evidence that fasting once a month hurts you. And there's a lot of reasons that you know, a lot of different religions recommend it. It seems to be somewhat spiritually satisfying. 
And now we have evidence that it might be beneficial. And so when it doesn't hurt you and it doesn't cost anything to fast for a day, it's certainly reasonable, something to recommend, even though we need to do lots more studies to try to justify and figure out exactly how it works and determine the dose response. If you fast once a week, is that better? If you fast every other day, is that better? We don't know those things. But we did look at people who, on average, fast once a month, and that was a significant reduction in their cardiovascular risk. So it's something that I'm starting to tell my patients and recommend that they give it a try. Well, thank you, Dr. Muelstein and Dr. Horn, for being our guests. We've been discussing the lower risk of cardiovascular disease that has been seen in patients who fast as little as once a month. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special series, Exploring Heart Health on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to our special series, Exploring Heart Health. Join us all month for more here on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals.